and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast, where every week we explore different stories around water that include safe water projects, trends in the water space, and blue mind. We hope you enjoy listening, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofen. Responsible World, welcome back. Really interesting discussion today with the president of Lazuli Advisors, Matthew Marigi. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the ocean. What role the ocean plays in local and global economics in regards to trade, tourism, environment, law, and how the rising temperatures in the ocean is creating a problem for ocean life and fishers around the world. We'll also learn about what ocean, ocean acidification is doing to different things for cor- like coral reefs and phytoplankton and really examine the environment business nexus that ties into the whole food nutrition security debate and how, we're, how we can explore using sustainable fisheries and aquacultures as a solution. We hope you enjoy listening and take care. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Today, we are sitting down with the president of Lazuli Advisors, Matthew Marigi. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How's it going, Kevin? I'm doing quite well, thank you. So I always love having fellow water lovers on the show. And someone like you that has a lot of different passions around water um, brings a lot of unique insights. And to give us some context, tell us a little bit about some of your passions around water and how that intersected with some of the different work that you are currently now doing with water. So I think like a lot of your listeners and a lot of your guests, uh, you know, my love for the ocean and, uh, and for water in general started when I was very young. So I am from southern New Jersey, about 45 minutes south of Philadelphia, uh, and an area that's kind of a, a very flat sea level coastal floodplain um, that uh, is surrounded on uh, three different sides by water. So a lot of my earliest memories are uh, going with my grandparents to swim in the Atlantic Ocean, um, uh, usually on long beach island in southern new jersey uh, also had a lot of experience spending uh, time in the summers in ocean city and wildwood and a bunch of the other shore communities down in that part of jersey but what uh, kind of was interesting for me was that i always loved the ocean i've been a swimmer my whole life and it always was kind of close to my heart but even with all of that proximity and all of that exposure i really didn't appreciate um, just the interesting role that the ocean plays in the global economy um, and in uh, local businesses here in the United States until actually I went to graduate school. Uh, so I went to Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is a very well-regarded international affairs graduate school. And it, it uh, has the distinction of being the only international affairs graduate school that has a maritime studies program. So I had started doing some research on maritime security back in 2013 before I started my graduate degree, and I decided to follow up with that uh, uh, at, the, uh, at the school, intending kind of to go back into my former Department of Defense work. But what I appreciated more and more as I started to dive into it uh, as an academic is that the maritime domain is very unique. It's eclectic. It's interdisciplinary at its core, which is always interesting to me. And it brought back that childhood, you know, longstanding love and appreciation for the ocean and for water and tied it together for something that could be relevant for my professional career, which is why I am now the president of a small consulting firm and I'm doing a lot of intersectional work with water in the global economy. That's fascinating. And yeah, I agree that the ocean inspires awe and wisdom. You can stand at the shores and just be fascinated by it. And, And really, it's almost crazy to think about how many different aspects of the ocean 
plays within our daily life. And you can think about, like you mentioned, some aspects of trade, some aspects of tourism, some aspects of food. And it's something that has so many different layers. And and now with, with kind of your, your current roles and, and some of your aspects, like what are some of these examples of maritime law or maritime kind of business or environmental discussion that you've worked in that would... Um, you know, provide some context on some of the work you're doing around the ocean. Well, for uh, the example that we usually use um, from my uh, my former work in the Maritime Studies program at Fletcher uh, to sort of understand the intersectional and interdisciplinary nature of this is uh, uh, Somali piracy. So, for example, um, you know, Somali piracy is a pretty obvious security threat, right? You know, people are getting hijacked and there's uh, a nexus with terrorism and with uh, illicit finance and whatnot. So, obviously, there's a very large security dimension to Somali piracy. But if you start to kind of peel the onion back a little bit more, you start to see that there's a lot of different variables that are at play there. So, for example, the reason why uh, Somalis uh, became pirates in the first place was because they were getting displaced uh, for their traditional fishing grounds, particularly with um, the, uh, the very abundant tuna stocks that were still left in the Indian Ocean by foreign fishing fleets. And the reason why that was able to happen was because of the business dynamics in the seafood sector. Um, and, you know, the price that uh, seafood has globally is rising. There's a lot more interest from consumers about uh, healthier forms of protein compared to land protein. And so the price of seafood and the value of seafood's gone up. At the same time, on the supply side, um, the uh, wild fishing stocks have gone down dramatically globally over the span, especially in the past 30 and 40 years, um, which means that there are fewer fish that are out there, which means that these big fleets from China, Japan, and even Spain and some others um, are trying to go further and further afield, sometimes illegally, in order to try to find uh, access to good fishing grounds. So the environmental issues and the environmental factors of fisheries collapse in other areas that have nothing to to do with Somalia all of a sudden is driving this force to change what is happening to Somalis. And then there's the legal dimension because the Somalis feel aggrieved because they um, are having the fish stolen out of their exclusive economic zone, which is given under the Law of the Sea Convention that was uh, brokered by the UN and is kind of the rules of the road for how the ocean should work. So there are these intersectional you know, issues of security, business, environment, and law that are all at play. And so understanding all of these different levers ranging from the price of seafood to how the Law of the Sea Convention works are very, very crucial to understanding how this all works, which means that uh, for a person who's interested in different uh, aspects of trade, the economy, or security, that it is a kind of a rich area to go into some uh, very interesting detail, but also look at some fun macro trends. That's fascinating. And, and I mean, it's so interesting to look at the cause and effect of ultimately what causes Somali pirates or what, what caused some existing social dynamic to occur in the first place. And looking at it, it, it was the growth of commercial fisheries that led to this impact of the fishery, the fishing industry to go into some of these local fisheries, which caused that migration. And I think that kind of intersection of the cause and effect that if this, then that is something that's so fascinating in this world. And, and the, this kind of ties into the threats that we face in this world with growing populations and whether you, whether it's called global warming or climate change, climate shifting, how is the impact of changing temperatures and growing populations continuing to put a, a strain and if anything, an importance on the, um, I guess, regulating and, and kind of maintaining 
uh, a kind of a fair ocean environment? So I guess there's there's two dimensions to take this. I'll start with the environmental uh, issues first. So the two big ones that uh, you kind of touched on, one that you touched on, and the other one that kind of goes along with it that's being driven by climate change is ocean warming and ocean acidification. So ocean warming is a big problem for ocean life because, you know, fish and plants, they are, you know, they respond to their environment just like humans do. So as the environment changes, all of a sudden fish are starting to migrate to new areas um, or possibly there's threats to some of their food systems. Um, and so as a result, especially when you layer on, uh, for example, the law of the sea convention, all of a sudden you have these migratory fish stocks that may end up in different exclusive economic zones um, or say, for example, uh, ones that aren't governed by international fishing commissions, say like lobsters, may end up in, you know, moving from New England up to Canada in order to find colder water as the ocean warms. All of a sudden, that might mean a big difference in livelihoods for people that are based out in Maine. So there's a lot of variables on the warming side and how it affects fish. Um, that are worth paying attention to, to say nothing, of course, of, you know, sea level rise and whatnot. Uh, the other one is uh, ocean acidification. So as the um, as the ocean gets warmer and as the uh, there's more carbon in the atmosphere, that also means there's more carbon in the water, which is affecting the level of pH, basically the level of acidity that's in the water. And one of the big problems is as the ocean becomes more acidic, uh, this small krill and basically very microscopic shellfish that make the base of the food web um, inside of the ocean are starting to have a harder and harder time building their shells. And so if the ocean is too acidic for these creatures to be able to survive, all of a sudden, the basically the base of the pyramid may actually end up being falling out from under it, which means possibly catastrophic or at the very least profound changes in how ocean life is functioning. And then, of course, the, the one that we all see both from a tourism side and you know from, a, uh, from even ecological side is the mass bleaching of coral reefs uh, across the world, particularly in the Great Barrier reef off of Australia, which can affect everything from tourism for divers that like to go, but also for all the very rich, vibrant ecosystems that rely on those coral for survival. So those are the ones to kind of pay attention to on the environmental side. And then on more of the environment business nexus side, uh, the seafood industry, particularly with the state of collapse of wild fisheries around the world, is one to keep an eye on. You know, there's a lot of data showing, you know, where it's collapsed and how much it's collapsed. You know, we're down to only 9% of the world's fisheries by UN estimates are at, you know, are being underfished and that basically everything else is being taken out at unsustainable rates. And uh, it's something that the international community has become very sensitive to. Uh, you go to these ocean conferences about you know, wide-ranging issues of dealing in facing the ocean, but seafood and fisheries and the livelihoods of coastal communities are definitely the issue that rises to the top and elicits sometimes the most kind of visceral and emotional reactions from policymakers and from community advocates. So those are the big ones that I'm paying attention to. Well, thank you for that context. And yeah, we could really dive into all those issues for over hours, I'm sure. But one, one that I've been doing a lot of research on and, and was blown away by is, is the amount of coral bleaching going on and looking at the, the importance of coral that people maybe don't fully realize. And I had seen that coral produce just as much oxygen as the rainforest. And and I think if anything more, that's the, they provide the environment for the phytoplankton to um, enable that carbon sequestration into oxygen. And, and maybe if, if you have any context on, on uh, kind of on that, why that's so important and why kind of what can we do 
to reverse this issue of coral bleaching or you know, why is this coral issue something that people, whether it's businesses, but also normal people need to pay attention to? So I think it, we'll start with the last part first, like why people should pay attention. I think there's, it's a combination of, you know, there's a little bit of the business end on the tourism and the diving side, but there's also just something, there's something emotional uh, to people that love and appreciate the ocean that, you know, the coral bleaching hits them hard for a couple of reasons. One, it's very visual. I mean, you do the side-by-side pictures of what a coral reef looked like before and after a coral bleaching episode, and it's just, it's haunting, especially with that kind of unearthly, you know, uh, white color that happens to coral when they get bleached. It just, it's a very, it's a very visual thing that people can respond to, even if they're not, you know, ocean practitioners or, you know, devotees of the ocean for every days of their lives. Uh, so that's one. And then the other one also is then the uh, other intended effects for, you know, what people assume is the ocean with, you know, vibrant, colorful fish and whatnot that are traditionally found around this colorful coral. And so you take, again, that visual element of perfect, beautiful color, vibrant, lots of activity to just dead, bleached, white emptiness, and it hits people hard. It it makes it, makes it very visual, just like, say, for example, the... Um, uh, challenges the Arctic is facing when you see polar bears that are emaciated swimming through the water because they can't find any land, they can't find food. That's the kind of stuff that can get people to uh, have a bit of a more of a reaction than try to want to do something. Now, what we do about it, that's a big problem. And there's a reason why, you know, climate policy in uh, uh, the global stage, say nothing of the national stage in the U.S., is very, very hard. And really, it's getting warming under control because the more, uh, the warmer the planet gets, the more um, uh, you know, pH levels are going to rise inside the ocean and get affected, which the more acidic it becomes, and then the more coral that'll die off. And to you know, bring it home, you know, the coral produce that much oxygen, and the ocean in general produces about the same percentage of oxygen on the planet as it does surface area. So it's about 70 to 75 percent of the oxygen that we breathe is coming from the ocean right now. So it's a crucial part of the web of how these gases that literally give us life are transmitted around the planet. And you combine that with other ecological challenges, and all of a sudden, coral bleaching is now not quite existential yet but could actually be an existential concern in the future. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. And and you had mentioned the whole notion of yeah, getting global warming under control. And and I'm asked this question a lot of, hey, what what can I do to be a a more responsible global citizen and, and actually pay it forward in some capacity? And there's you know, during drought scenarios, there's a lot of things you can do to like not washing your car outside or taking shorter showers and and I had a really good discussion with an author of a book called Eat Less Water. Uh, her name's Florencia Ramirez. But talking about one of the most influential and impactful things that people can do is evaluating their diet and being activists in our kitchen through what we consume. And I know some people may find that to be crazy, but when you look at some of these global warming trends and when you hear that it takes 1,800 gallons of water to produce a pound of red meat and there's a huge amount of carbon footprint that goes into just the weight of the animal to the defecation of the animal, everything that goes into the production of that type of protein. And I know you'd mentioned some of these good and bad proteins. I'd love to know a little bit more about this whole perception of some of the aquaculture and fisheries that maybe in the past got a bad rep, but 
are these is that the solution to our 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 kind of appetite for protein and uh, the uh, ability to feed our world or what's your what's your thoughts on that so uh one of the interesting things that uh that i've seen in my studies of the aquaculture basically the sometimes called fish farming but it's much beyond fish um much of what i've seen in the fish farming industry is that there's this very interesting opportunity to try to get around some of the problems that terrestrial agriculture has suffered under, uh, whether it's in terms of business model, but also in terms of the efficiency of the growth of some of these species. So, for example, um, there is a, a, a Norwegian state-run uh, research agency that works with aquaculture called Nofema, and they've done some very interesting research on the amount of carbon and the um, uh, basically the resource efficiency of uh, growing different types of species. And and through a combination of genetics, um, you know, not GMOs, but uh, you know, selective breeding programs um, and uh, technological changes, the Norwegians have actually gotten to the point now where you're, uh, to create a pound of salmon is actually the most carbon-efficient uh, creation of animal protein on the planet. It's slightly better than chickens, and it's you know, orders of magnitude better than uh, than pigs and cows. And a big part of that, you know, actually has to do with physics and the fact that a fish uh, doesn't need to expend energy to be to stay buoyant. So, for example, it just you know finds kind of its you know sort of its happy place and it can stay buoyant in the water. Whereas a cow or a pig or even a chicken has to spend a lot of energy building up muscle mass just to stand up and to deal with gravity and to move around. So, uh, so salmon at this point have gotten to be incredibly low carbon, um, and they also have a high what's called a feed conversion ratio uh, (FCR). And that's kind of the gold standard behind uh, a lot of different farming industries for animal protein is basically how much feed does it take to create a pound of meat because the more feed that it takes, much higher the price is, but also then the less efficient it is, which then leads to follow-on effects of more water usage and whatnot. So the uh, uh, looking at uh, sustainable aquaculture and fish farming is actually a really interesting growth area to try to find more sustainable por- uh, forms of animal protein, particularly as the planet is continuing to grow much larger very, very quickly. And the food systems uh, on land are starting to get stretched uh, very extensively. Uh, the other part of that, though, to, um, uh, to consider is that there's a lot of ocean area right now that could be used for aquaculture that's currently uh, remains unused. Uh, so we are at this interesting point where there's a lot of opportunity to grow and to scale, uh, both commercially interesting but also interesting for food security. But it's also a bit of a blank slate. So there are opportunities to sort of lay the groundwork for what sustainable aquaculture can look like in the beginning rather than having to try to retroactively change the uh, food growing system in order to deal with the sustainability concerns concerns that we have right now. So anytime you can kind of build it from the ground up to have these sustainability issues in mind, it makes it a lot easier to sort of build the system that you want rather than retroactively changing things and having to displace people's livelihoods or to uh, invest in a lot of technology and do retrofits and whatnot. Uh, so it's a very interesting time to be looking at, uh, at aquaculture as a way to get around those food security challenges that we're going to have in the next 20 years. 
Fascinating. And, and really so many variables and dynamics to consider. And if anything, what's most exciting about this is that as much as we are facing a lot of problems, as what I'm hearing from you from some of these fisheries and understanding of aquaculture and looking at what's been proven, there seems to be quite a bit of market opportunity to explore some of these new aquaculture and fish farming concepts and it will be exciting to see some of the different startups and some of the new technologies being pushed towards this area um, so it's as one door opens or one door closes another one opens and it'll be exciting to continue to see this industry evolve definitely and the thing that i've also seen in a lot of my research is that there is a lot of demand for this not just in you know developed western markets you know where there could be some interesting you know price points and maybe some interesting sustainability stories to tell but this actually can get to the heart of food security and nutritional security so as an example um, the country of senegal and west africa uh, where i've done a little bit of work uh, recently um, is a very uh, large fish consumer and they've had a collapse of their wild fish stocks over the past decade or so because of overfishing. Uh, kind of a traditional story you've heard in a lot of places that uh, kind of overfish and they don't have the technology to do deep water fishing or they sell their fishing rights to foreign countries that can pay a bunch of money. And so then it gets to the point where there are some people are doing illegal fishing in Mauritania um, in order to try to get access to some of these fish stocks that are left, primarily because the Senegalese love to eat fish. Um, there's a white fish uh, that is very uh, popular, in the, uh, you know, that's a wild-caught fish that goes into the national di uh, dish uh, called chebujen, which is essentially a mixture of um, rice, root vegetables, and fish. It's very, very good. I'm a huge fan. Uh, but Senegal also has this amazingly impressive riverine system between the Senegal River, the Gambia River, and a few others um, up and down the coast that is perfect for doing freshwater or brackish water cultivation of tilapia and other easily farmed fish that could easily go and replace um, the wild-caught fish for, uh, in Chebujen. But the main problem there isn't even access to technology. It's uh, access to money and access to capital in order to fund the expansion of these projects along its very impressive natural resources. So in an interesting way, you know, you have a domestic market that sometimes doesn't have access to fish three or four days out of the week and a high demand for fish and all of the opportunities to farm it uh, literally right next to where the market would be, but there's just not the money and there's not the adaptive financing mechanisms to support it. So getting at solving some of these challenges, you know, it's, it is kind of weird to say that one of the ways that you could possibly save the ocean is by trying to, you know, improve finance, but it actually, there are some interesting levers that people can pull to try to advance this food security uh, challenges down the road and try to solve them. Well, no shortage of issues to to address here, and and I, I do like that idea too. Of what, a lot of times with the the finance issue, I mean, a lot of times even within the water treatment sector, what we're talking about isn't rocket science. We're actually just trying to look at the existing problem with a with a new lens and just trying to deploy people, passion, and some money to be able to allow either it's water security or food security. Um, so that seems like another great example of, again, nothing that's it's not really rocket science. We're just looking to mobilize the right people and some finance to make it happen. Um, yeah. 
and that's the big part of it is mobilizing the right people. Because I've noticed that you know there's there's kind of this oh uh, there's perpetually this underlying tension in the impact investment community, which is basically this movement to try to open up financing um, to more impactful social, environmental, and governance kind of objectives. Is that sometimes there's there is a tension where there is an interest in trying to deploy more capital, but the way that they're structured and financial products just aren't as profitable as other alternatives, and so the people that have the money don't gravitate towards those kinds of projects. So what it's going to take is it's going to take a mixture of people with traditional finance backgrounds and people who know the water treatment or the aquaculture or the fishing sector to basically join together more to try to de-risk some of these investments to make them more attractive for commercial investors so that you don't have to always tell a impact story or an ocean sustainability story to attract people to finance these projects, but you just make them attractive enough that basically the numbers can speak for themselves and that the social impact side is then just an extra bonus to feel good about on top of the fact that you're doing decently financially. Awesome, Matt. Very well said. Uh, one thing I do like to end with some of our guests here is you, you mentioned you are from the the Northeast and, and you, you kind of grew up loving the ocean, but I'd love to know what is your favorite body of water and what is your favorite water activity? So I'll go with the, uh, the second one first. Um, I'm a swimmer. I love swimming. Swimming is the thing that I would love to do in the water the most. And it doesn't matter. Lake, river, you know, ocean. I love body surfing in the waves. I love just diving under the water, even if it's super cold and feeling that kind of that tingly rush of the water all over your body. Um, I love just the act of being in the water and being surrounded by it is my favorite thing. And my favorite body of water is actually a really, really small one. Um, I was very lucky uh, at a young age to grow up next to a sand wash. So a sand wash is basically an old sand mine that you know hits groundwater and then fills up and creates an artificial lake. And it was in my backyard when I was a kid. So I would go swimming in it. I'd take a boat out on it, you know, just a little fiberglass, you know, three-person boat, uh, and go out there. There's fish in the water. Uh, and I, I loved it, you know, being able to wake up every morning and look at this beautiful sand wash with a house that was pointing east. So you get this beautiful sunrise over it. That's my favorite body of water. It's a super personal one. It's uh, I think it's technically called Shadow Lake. We really didn't give it much of a name, but um, it's that body of water that I was next to for a decade and a half, two decades of my life. And it'll always be with me for the rest of my life. I love it. Well said. And and lastly, if people wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about some of the work that you're doing, what would be the best way for people to do that? So uh, I have my consulting company has a website, uh, lazuliadvisors.com, uh, which I can give to you to put in the description if you're interested. Um, I'm also on uh, Instagram at matthew.marigi. Um, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, there's not a lot of Marigis uh, running around, as you can imagine, so it'll be pretty easy to find me. Um, so I'm always happy to talk to people on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm probably also going to be launching a blog series uh, soon to try to look at these intersectional issues on blue businesses um, and particularly trying to augment some of the work that I'm doing uh, on the sustainable finance side that should hopefully be more public in the next few months. So yeah, you'll see me writing and uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on Instagram, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone who loves the ocean. Awesome, Matt. Your wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate all your insight and time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. 